Welcome in, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Cats Illustrated Podcast. Adam Luckett coming to you, the host again, a couple weeks removed from our last podcast, and it's been a crazy week in the Bluegrass State, and we're just trying to touch on everything that's happened here in the last week or so. And again, joining me is our guy, Justin Rowland. Justin, how you doing, man? I'm good, Adam. I thought our, our first time doing this was fantastic. I wish we had been able to make it. Make it a second episode sooner, but so much has happened. we got plenty to talk about, so I'm really excited about it. Absolutely, and I know you've been a busy man, Justin, with uh, the early signing day, which we'll get to here in a minute. First, I really want to talk about uh, Kentucky's bowl game. Uh, of course, they went down to Nashville, lost a really hard-fought uh, football game, 24-23. to It was really probably one of their more entertaining games of the season especially from a, a third-party perspective. I, I know that, that Music City Bowl was one of the highest-rated bowl games um, during the bowl season outside of, you know, the New Year's Six and the playoff. But either way, I think Kentucky fans uh, walking out of the stadium felt proud of the, the, the team to see how they played against Northwestern. Um, but it's a question that comes up a lot. Is it a moral – Is this was this a good moral victory? Is Kentucky – as a program, is this something they take something positive away from, or is it a loss, a loss? Well, I'll get your take on it too. But you know, whether you want to call it a moral victory or just a good sign, you know, I don't think the game's outcome has anything to do with how the team is going to perform next season. And I mentioned this on Twitter. I think Utah's coach Kyle Whittingham is what like eleven and one in bowl games now, and I don't think winning all of those bowl games has, has significantly advanced their program or helped them to climb the ladder. And similarly, I wouldn't imagine that a coach with the, with the reverse record in bowl games, I mean, I don't think that would say a whole lot either. You know, this is, it's a one-game exhibition setting, and I, I thought it was important that Kentucky bounce back and play well. Last year, they didn't play well against Georgia Tech in the bowl game, but it was but that was on the heels of the win over Louisville. This was on the heels of blowout losses to Georgia and Louisville. I thought it was important for them to show the fans that they could stop the bleeding, that they could reset, that they could recalibrate, and that Mark Stoops was capable of, if given a month, putting together a good game plan and, and getting his team focused. And I think... I think he did that. So whether you call it a moral victory or not, I know there's a stigma attached to that language, but I don't see how you come away from that game feeling anything less than, than pretty good. I think somebody on the site made a really good point. Just very succinct, very simple. I feel, And he said, I feel better about Mark Stoops today, or I like Mark Stoops more today than I did yesterday. And I thought that was, that was pretty well put. Yeah, I think going into this game, they really just – they turned a lot of fans off in that Louisville game with how they played, how they acted. And really, I thought they didn't play with much effort in that Louisville game. I think they were really, you know, that Georgia game really kind of stole their souls from them. So uh, I think just seeing them go out there and play hard, you saw even Jordan Jones has that stupid personal foul, but he was even helping up Northwestern players and stuff like that. You saw when Clayton Thorson got injured, uh, a bunch of U.K. players went over there and dapped him up and wished him good luck. Um, so I think that was I think Kentucky fans wanted to see that as weird as it may sound. I think they were pretty disgusted with how the things went down in the Louisville game. And then I just think they wanted to see the team play hard and that's what they did. They did really play hard for sixty minutes. And I think a lot of fans were really happy with how Mark Stoops handled that whole referee inter interactions. Remember last year in the Georgia Tech game he got mad because of the cut blocks. And it really, he was yelling at Paul Johnson on the field. There was the report that he went in, in halftime and kicked down the referee's doors. And we've seen him on the sideline before really overreact and get caught up in the motions. I thought he did a good job of just staying calm, even keel, and really just coaching his football team. I think he went out of his way to err on the side of caution. You know, they asked him about the Benny Snell ejection, you know, afterwards and even he, he didn't have the angles that people watching on TV or, or who had the privilege of replay had, but you know he, he basically gave the ref the benefit of the doubt. Now when he went on KSR at the end of the week, he, he had time to think about it and look at it, and he took up for Snell after Barnhart after Barnhart's lead. I thought that was the right thing to do, but he was very calm, collected on the sideline. I thought it reflected well on him that the team responded to adversity the way that they did. It didn't become like uh, just, just a free-for-all or a circus when, you know, maybe it has sometimes in the past. I thought Jordan Jones showed, showed some restraint 
and he better show restraint for Stoops' sake because Stoops has really gone out of the limb for that guy in terms of the patience that he's afforded him. I think a lot of people in the fan base have wanted him gone, and I've defended him a little bit too, not because he's earned it, but just because I'm a, I'm a fan of second, third, and even fourth chances if the, if the circumstances are right. But, I mean, if you, Northwestern outgained him by 100 yards. They rushed for 330 yards. They dominated time of possession. If you look at those underlying factors, I would have told you that they would have easily covered the spread. And then you take Vinny Snell out of the equation. I think, you know, you have a chance to win at the end of the game. you got to feel really good about that. But the flip side is that's the last three teams on the schedule all rushing for over 300 yards against you. And, you know, you've got some real questions now about several of your top defensive players off of a bad defense thinking about leaving early. So we just don't know what next year's team is going to look like. And I'm just trying not to blow this game out of proportion because it didn't didn't mean a lot for next year, but I think it helped fans think more fondly of this year's team. Yeah, I agree with that. And I think a lot of that had to do with competition down the stretch. If you look at the number, the advanced numbers, Georgia and Louisville are two of the top ten rushing offenses in the country. And then Northwestern has an NFL back in Justin Jackson. What really hurt them was giving up the, lar- the yards to Larkin off the bench. If they were able to really limit some of Larkin's big plays, I think those rushing numbers would have looked a little bit better. But the good thing for the defense that I saw, I brought it up last podcast, the thing Kentucky's defense has to do, I think, to really be successful is force turnovers and get red zone stops. And they didn't force any turnovers in the Northwestern game, which really probably the biggest reason that they lost. They lost that turnover battle. But they were able to force multiple red zone stops against a great red zone offense on the season. So I think that was a really good sign. And I, I think that's got to be a point of emphasis in the offseason is getting stops in the red zone. Yeah, the defense was definitely more opportunistic. And, you know, you're right about the competition at the end of the season. I was looking at some of the some of the situational stats for the season. They really isolated a lot of the damage the defense did in, ter- in, in their losses. I think I, when Kentucky was losing by more than a touchdown, the other team rushed for, I want to say, like eight and a half yards a carry on the season. Mm-hmm. Eight, eight and a half yards a carry. And that's basically when Kentucky was getting blown out, teams were just gashing them. And unfortunately, there were too many times when they were playing from a long way behind. But when the game was close, or when the game was tied, or when Kentucky was winning for the whole season, they were actually pretty good against the run, which means, you know, the best teams could run on them, and they were okay defending most teams. I thought there were, there were some really good signs defensively. They pressured Northwestern better than Northwestern pressured Kentucky, although I, I thought Landon Young was beat a little bit in terms of protecting Johnson's uh, blind side. I, and I thought mostly the secondary played great. I think this is the first time in really a couple of years when that recruited link, those six three, six four corners, you, it really paid off. They had an athleticism, a size advantage against Northwestern's receivers. Unfortunately, Northwestern is wired such that they can still they, they can win games a lot of different ways. And Kentucky can't win games a lot of different ways under normal circumstances. The fact that they almost did, I think, I don't want to call it a fluke or an outlier, but um, but they were, I want to say that they were fortunate to have a chance to win that game given given how far it veered from the course that they're normally comfortable with. When you have a top 25 defense and NFL running back, you're going to put yourself in position to win a lot of games, and that's what Northwestern had. You talked about tackle, I think, but I think tackle, I don't think it's going to be a position a lot of people talk about, but I think it's a real concern for this offense going into next year. Landon Young, really, they kind of – he didn't start after about four games. He rotated in, but they really used Kyle – Kyle Meadows didn't leave the field. He played both right and left tackle, and he was Kentucky's most productive tackle all season. They lose him. So they're going to be counting on Young and George Osafo Ajay, who's really a guard converted to play tackle. And so that, those two positions, I think, are going to be really important to keep an eye on as we get in um, into the 2018 season. Yeah, I think it's going to be a pretty ferocious battle in the offseason. And I would say there's a tendency for us to get fixed ideas about how things are going to play out. Like, oh, well, Landon Young is the first five-star Rivals.com recruit for, for Kentucky. So naturally, as a junior, it's his job to lose. I actually think that there are probably four tackles that are in a pretty even spot going into next season competing for two two spots. I think Landon Young, 
Uh, E.J. Price, the Southern Cal transfer. Nasir Watkins didn't play this year. But you remember in camp, uh, I think it was Eddie Grant who said that Watkins showed up at basically the same level of readiness that Landon Young had the previous year. That's a three-star recruit. And then Big George. I think it wouldn't shock me if any combination of two of those four guys were Kentucky's two starting tackles next season. And I, I have no clue how that's going to play out. Yeah, I definitely agree with that. But with the work Schlarman's done the last two years, I think you should feel pretty confident with that. Uh, at least on, on paper, they're going to have some good depth at that position. But one quick thing before I move on to uh, one player I think Kentucky fans should be really excited about next year, um, the Snell ejection. Uh, like you mentioned earlier, we heard Stoops on Friday afternoon go on Kentucky Sports Radio and really pretty much tell straight up that the ref lied to him and that was the worst call he's ever seen. And then that even Pat Fitzgerald said it, another call in the game was the worst call he's ever seen. Then Mitch Barnhart went out this past week on Twitter and really defended Benny Snell because the ref came out and kind of gave a ludicrous statement, and the Pac-12 is not going to do anything to him, even though he's had a history of some questionable calls. Earlier in this year, he had a Colorado State-Colorado game. They had three offensive passes interference calls on Colorado State. Two took touchdowns off the board in a game they would lose by two scores. So he's had some. He's had a history, and it, it's a point that I have – that when you have these referees employed by these different conferences, they and they go and do games like this. They have no, there's no policing agency. So if they do something wrong, they're not gonna, they don't get punished. And it's just really something that I think the NCAA really needs to look in and trying to find a solution for this. So this because you're seeing it all over. You saw um, Mark Rick in the Orange Bowl almost push a ref down and get no, just get a penalty, and he doesn't get, you know, thrown out of the game, and then. You see in basketball, Kentucky's had their or their deals with officials. And you saw Teddy Valentine in a basketball game the other night just turn his back to a North Carolina player to just ask why that why he called that and he's not gonna get, you know, penalized. So I, I think there needs to be like kind of one one umbrella where that judges these officials and not just individual conferences. I don't know what the solution is. I know um, when it came to T V Teddy, you know, the statement was it's going to be dealt with internally, which probably means nothing's going to happen. I mean, heck, it's pretty good for ratings. Um, and then, you know, in, in terms of the Kentucky game, the Snell ejection, I don't have a hot take. I mean, it, the, the ref's ego got in the way. He made the decision. Once the decision was made, there's no going back on it. You're not going to say, you know what, I screwed up. Come on back as he's trotting off the field. He doubled down. I'm not, I don't want to write it off as just human nature, but he made a, he made a split-second mistake, an error of judgment that was powered by his ego in that moment, that it's a concern that somebody who's on that kind of power trip is, uh, is in any position of authority, sports or otherwise. But um, I will say the side note is this probably, this probably gives Benny Snell a lot more visibility going into next season <laughs> in terms of nationally. A lot of people outside the SEC probably didn't know much about him, and he became one of the stories of bowl season. And um, I, how much did it impact the outcome of the game? Certainly, I think Kentucky would have had a better chance to win with Snell. I'm not prepared to say that it, it, it was the reason Kentucky lost the game because I don't think he was going to probably have a huge game anyways, just Northwestern's track record. But uh, really unfortunate for the fans who made the trip. For Snell, though, I mean, that's an elite back going against a great run defense. It would have... Kentucky just had to like totally change their game plan on the fly and really just come out and throw it all in the second half. I only think they only ran it maybe three or four or five times with a running back after that happened. So I think it changed the game plan. I don't you just don't know how it would have affected the, the game overall. It's just been nice to see him play. But one thing before we finally put this Bulls game behind us, I think you saw a really really exciting performance from Taven Richardson, even though he dropped the two point conversion. He really made some great plays against a really good corner that Northwestern had, Montre Hardage, I believe his name was. Five catches, eighty so I think eighty-two yards on the day. Had two big drops, the two-point conversion, and then a third down, but really showed some separation, something we hadn't seen from Kentucky receivers, the ability to create separation. And then when you look at him coming back for his junior year, getting Dorian Baker back on the outside, getting Lim Bowden at slot, and then having the return of C.J. Conrad at tight end, I think 
as a Kentucky fan, you should, and as a Kentucky uh, supporter, you should be really, really excited about that receiver position next season. I agree. I say about Taven Richardson. I just wrote a, a deep dive feature on him for the site, kind of breaking down his season. People can read that. I think deep dive Taven Richardson is on the on the front page somewhere. But um, he's not the kind of receiver I imagine. When I saw him in high school, uh, and he was one of the top. I think he was number nine player in South Carolina. I, he's kind of that wide body, big catch radius. Not a great athlete, not blazing speed, but good size, good hands. Proven to have really good hands in spite of some drops. He's proven to be more of a deep threat at Kentucky than I thought he was going to be. I thought he was just going to be kind of one of those guys who moved the chains. But going back to the, I want to say he had a hand in that big first half against Southern Miss as a as a freshman last year. Yeah, he caught a deep post. One of the first big long plays of the game was a deep post yeah. to him from Barker. Yeah, yeah. and he, he adjusts very well to the ball in the air. He um he, he uses his body well to get separation for the defensive back. The first play of the game was was a deep throw down the sideline and he had to leap and the defensive back got twisted around and he, he got a foot in maybe both feet in and then on the two plays later Johnson got flushed out left and threw back across his body over the middle of the field it was actually a really nice throw and Richardson finished his route and came back to the ball really aware play he's a smart player heady player better deep threat than I thought he was going to be um, the one thing he's got to do and it's not just him it's whoever the quarterback is, it's the offense. He he hasn't been efficient enough as a receiver in terms of the number of targets he's got he's getting. I want to say he's close to like 17, 18 percent of Kentucky's targets this year, which was second on the team behind Juice Johnson, who is far and away the most targeted receiver. But in terms of you know making catches off of those targets and, and making productive catches off those targets, his his success rate, his catch rate was pretty low mm-hmm. compared to some of the other receivers. And you know, if Kaiwan Ross returns. That's something else he's got to work on too. But um, they got to become more efficient with Richardson. And I, th- I, but I do think on paper he's probably the most likely guy to be their leading returning or to be their returning um, their number one receiver next year. You yeah, know, Dorian Baker is a big X factor. But I think on paper Richardson's probably the one you feel the best about. Yeah, you mentioned that catch rate. Bolden actually had one of the best on the team. So that's um, a good sign for a guy that you think could, should be targeted a lot out of the slot next year. But Richardson and Baker fi- kind of like, kind of both fall in that category. I believe Baker is sophomore and junior years. So he was right around 50% catch rate. And then uh, Richardson was actually below 50%, I believe, most of the season. So he really t- turned it on the ba- last few games. But, yeah, from an efficiency standpoint for the passing game, that's something uh, they're going to have to improve. But we'll move on, uh, Justin. I want to – uh, touch on a national si- early national signing day, um, something that you know uh, better about than anyone else that covers uh, the Kentucky Wildcats. My biggest question for you is: Do you think it could have gone any better for Kentucky? Obviously, Xavier Peters they weren't able to land a signature from him, um, but just getting everybody signed on that day and then getting the quarterback um, after the Jerem Williams a decommitment for I believe the third time. Could it, it have gone any better for Kentucky on that early signing day? So this is a, a little bit of – I'll say a little bit of a hot take just because I don't think some of the media who cover Kentucky really – and I'm not calling anybody out, but, you know, I think lost in the fact that 20 of 21 guys signed is what happened right before the early signing period when Michi Harris decommitted and ultimately signed with Cincinnati and Shockey Jacques-Louis – who it looked like, I mean, he was a silent commitment for Kentucky, ended up going to Pitt. That doesn't show up in the 20 out of 21 guys signing. But the reality is they missed on, I would say, their top three wide receiver targets in the class. When you go back to Blue Smith, who was always a pipe dream. I mean, he's a fantastic job by Vince Morrow just keeping Kentucky in contention for as long as they were with him. But Shockey's a great explosive receiver, and when Shockey pretty much decided he was going to go to Pitt, I was telling everybody, well, it's a good thing they've got Michi because they'd be in a world of trouble if they didn't have Michi. Then Michi just made a really surprising decision that nobody anticipated. Nobody saw that coming. So I will say that the big disappointment of signing day, in my mind, was the receiver hall did not turn out as good as it could have or appeared it would at one point. But when you get Davion Hawkins... Darian Kennard and Marquand McCall to all 
sign and sign early, you know, forego that last month of who else might offer. That's very impressive. And um, at this point, they have a lot of spots to fill. I don't know exactly what the number is, but the number was 24-25. And now they've had like three transfers in a period of what, like three days. So Mm -hmm. I don't know how much that's changed the numbers. The pool of guys out there isn't that huge. And they got a lot of spots to fill. So I'll be interested in in whether they roll over any spots to next year's class. Um, they, they have a lot of work to do. But as far as the early signing period itself, they, they got a lot of their top guys. And that, that's what's really important. You mentioned Michi and Chucky, uh, Jock Louis. I didn't even – that's a good point, Justin. I really didn't even think about that. Um, because those were two guys just a week prior to signing day that Kentucky probably had on the big board there in the football office of guys that they were going to get. Yeah, and so in losing both of those, a thing we talked about this year with the loss of Jeff Fadette was who is going to be the, the explosive guy on the outside, and that's something they never really found all season. And th- both those guys, Michi Harris and Jock Louis, were t- two guys that were thought to have that ability to come in and be able to stretch the defense. So when you lose that, and the two guys they got covered in Marvin Alexander and Bryce Oliver. I think that's a big question with both those guys. I think Oliver's definitely kind of a underneath route kind of receiver. Maybe Alexander can do that. Watching his film, I think Michi and Shockey Jock Louis were better explosive down the field kind of type of receivers. So that's definitely a an area I think they need to improve. And I think that might probably the most important area for them is finding um, a vertical threat at receiver. Maybe they can get into the grad transfer market. I know that Dominic Watt is some guy that I think they're interested in down in Florida. But I think that's a really important position for this team. And especially with if Wilson wins that job, what he does best, I think, is throw it deep. And so they're, they're going to need options, um, whether it's a freshman or somebody currently on the roster, that's something they're going to need to develop this season. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, really the only guy they recruited the whole class that you're talking, okay, he can come in and really change – the forecast for the receiver group next year would have been Blue Smith. He's like the, the one guy who was a first-year immediate impact, big impact guy right away. So most guys, even Jock Louis, even Michi, you're talking what kind of impact are they going to really make two years down the road. I don't want to write off Ali and, and Isaiah Epps or even Javante Richardson, and you throw in Bowden and next year Baker and Taven Richardson. They got, they got some guys. There's no doubt they got some guys. I think the big need – um, in addition to whatever they can find there is, you know, with Kovacs transfer, they got to get another running back. Yep. I don't agree that it's a crisis. I don't agree that they're extremely thin at running back because Snell has proven to be very durable. I think uh, Chris Rodriguez coming in, they hope, is another Snell. Certainly been durable at the high school level. No reason to think that A.J. Rose is the kind of guy who gets who gets banged up much. And Saheem King has proven to be very durable for a smaller um, kind of third down back. Mm-hmm. Um but they need to add another running back, and you know whether it's Kavosier Smoke or um, somebody else running back as a position. Running back, linebacker, receiver, I would say are the most immediate needs. And then kind of a sleeper spot where I think they could use some help as defensive back because you know I think Edwards probably going to leave the NFL. That's just a guess. Even if he doesn't, after next season, Mike Edwards, Lonnie Johnson, Derek mm-hmm. Beatty, Chris Westry. I mean, all those guys are going on. It's going to be a huge youth movement. you got a lot of young guys, but you don't know how good those guys are yet. So yeah. they got to got to start thinking about that. Talk about young guys. I think Tyrell Asian is a guy that the staff really likes. Um, yeah. was a four-star player coming out of high school. He's kind of got a lot of similarities to Mike Edwards. So I think he's a guy that they're, they're going to try to play at safety and nickel. Yusuf Corker uh, was a good-looking athlete coming out of Georgia. I think he's a guy that's going to play this year at corner. But, yeah, you mentioned they're going to have a ton of seniors there in that, that secondary this year. So they're going to have to figure something out there. And then at linebacker, a guy, Xavier Peters, who just played an Under Armour All-American game. Um, he's a guy that, you know, for a lot of fans, that's who they know because he's one of UK's highest-rated commit. And if a guy like – if I think I'm projecting to play that Sam linebacker position where Josh Allen is right now. And if Josh Allen goes pro, he's a guy that could come in and really play next year. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, Peters, Peters has a world of upside. I mean, mm-hmm. you saw him hurdle a guy in the Under Armour game. And, I mean, Mike Farrell, uh, Rivals.com, National Director of Recruiting, 
listed him like honorable mention, the top honorable mention guy for the hardest hitter in the game. I think, you know, he's got an act, a little bit of work academically to do and some time to take care of that. I still think he's going to have a Kentucky. My question with Peters is I would probably class of, classify him as more of a high variance guy than a guy, I, you know, some guys I look at and I'm, I'm just confident they're going to make an impact at Kentucky. And I said that about Davion Hawkins from the jump just because he's like, like 270 pounds already and he looks like an NFL player. Um, and he's got a great heart and, and he produced at a high level. Peter's production and his experience are kind of lagging behind his potential and his athleticism right now. And so I don't know. I'm not, I'm not extremely confident he's going to be a great player. But I'm confident he can be a great player. Yeah, the thing um, with the thing with Peters when I when he first committed to UK and I watched his junior tape, he was specifically a middle linebacker. And mm-hmm. you're looking at Kentucky's depth chart, and you're like, man, this guy if he can come in possibly for the spring, he could really compete for that starting middle linebacker spot. And then when his senior huddle comes out, he's playing strictly outside linebacker. And when you start looking at his his uh, frame and uh, what he does well, you can really see, well, maybe he is an outside linebacker. And that's yeah, what – He played some defensive end. Yeah, yeah, he played some defensive end. So, good. so I don't – he's kind of – I don't really call him a tweener. I think athletically he's more probably better suited to an outside linebacker, but he has that experience inside as well. So it's you could possibly see him pinballing around like, with the co- like the coaching staff did with Boogie Watson this year. So I don't want to really put him in a box, but – but like you said, a lot of that's going to be he's going to have to really develop and he's going to have a really high ceiling, but he's not a slam dunk. Like I think, uh, like you mentioned, uh, Davion Hawkins was, I think, or like even Josh Pascal. I think we all knew when jo- Josh Pascal got landed here, he's going to be a, a player right away. And I don't, I'm not sure that's fair to expect the same for Peters. The thing about Peters we got to mention here, Jaron Williams is trying to get him on board at Miami now. I guess over the past few hours he's been he's been tweeting at him, and I disregard tweets, but I've also heard Miami's coaches are taking a really hard look at Peters now. They, Kentucky still thinks they're gonna they're gonna get him. I like the young talent Kentucky has at linebacker. You know, Jamin Davis gonna make an impact next year. Boogie Watson definitely gonna make a big impact. Eli Brown's gonna make even more of an impact. You know, they lose one of Allen and Ware. I think they're going to be just fine. If they lose both of those guys, they lose both of those guys, then they're still going to have talent, but the unit will take, I think, a a fairly significant step back. You just look at the production Allen and Ware have had the past two seasons, and that's for Kentucky to have that many sacks and career sacks and lose it in one year, career tackles for loss, I think that's a pretty significant blow. But I want to ask you one thing, Justin, before we move on. Middle linebacker is going to be another position that we get into diagnosing next year, and it's really going to be one of the interesting ones to watch in the spring. And, of course, uh, Cash Daniel, it's backed up Courtney Love last two years. But the thing I've had with Kentucky's defense is it's been kind of slow. And I've heard a lot of football people say you can't have a fast defense unless you have a fast middle linebacker. And Cash is a great, um, he's been a great special teams player, I think, for Kentucky but he's not the most explosive guy. And I would be I would wonder if Kentucky it's really going to be what how their how I want this will say a lot about their strategy next season. If they're dead set on stopping the run, I think Cash is probably your best guy in there, but if they want to get more speed on the field, I think you could see one of three guys play there. I think you could see Jamin Davis. I think you could see Boogie Watson and I think if Eli Brown could gain 15 20 pounds, I think he's a guy that could play that position. So there's really going to be a, a lot of options for the coaching staff there, and I'll be interested to see how that develops. You know, it's, it's a great question because it's the kind of thing that's going to that's going to make a lot of people mad when you when you got to talk bluntly. But mm-hmm. I mean, I just think Courtney Love. I see why he played. You know, he I thought he got better this year. I thought he started making some plays in coverage at the end of the season, especially in the bowl game that I didn't I hadn't seen from him before. I think he was a little bit better on angles and more of a sure tackler this year than he was last year. Just a little bit more active, more more around the ball this season for the most part, some some off games. But, I mean, they've, they've worked Boogie Watson onto the field, even when they've had superior depth at those outside yeah. lines. And when he gets there, he's, he's productive. He makes plays. Yeah. Uh, yeah. He's, and conversely, he... conversely, they haven't really gone out of their way to work – cash onto the field mm-hmm. and I get there's only one spot in the middle 
um, and you got a senior in front of him, like maybe you're bringing him along. I think he can still be an impact player for them, but just based on the behavior, the substitution behavior of the, of the Kentucky staff, I would I would almost say that Watson ha- has a leg up for that spot, even if it's a little bit of a change for him. Uh, yeah, I, I I agree with that, and I think he would help with their speed a lot too. Um, yeah, just in that front seven, I think that would help and. That helps cover a lot of holes. But we'll move on here. We'll get into more of that stuff as it prog- as the calendar moves on. But quickly, I just want to get into the transfers. Mainly, Drew Barker. Um, just looking back four years later, what what did you think? I think you had a unique take on it, Justin, when uh, that news broke out. What do you think uh, Drew Barker meant to the program because we talked about that class of 2014. He was that guy that really got it started. He really got it rolling. And now that we look back, you know, most of those guys didn't make a big impact. But we do have some guys in that class that a la Boom Williams, Mike Edwards, Bunchy Stalling, they're all SEC caliber players. Yeah, that class had – it, it had two distinct poles, you know, guys who didn't make any impact and were major disappointments. And I'm not just talking like Lloyd Tubman's unique situation and Matt Elam, but just guys who transfer like Nick Richardson, Jerry LaRubio. But on the other hand, some of Kentucky's very best players, you know, Mike Edwards, Denzel Ware, Stanley Williams, CJ Johnson, AJ Stan. I mean, they had a lot of really good players from that class. That, and that kind of gets lost for two reasons. One, because, I'd say three reasons. One, because the class was ranked 17th. And a lot of Kentucky fans, I don't want to sound pompous, saying a lot of Kentucky fans who don't know recruiting say, well, we have a 17th ranked class. They should be dominant. Well, no, having a 17th ranked class is great, but you need four or five of those in a row to really climb the ladder. It's razor thin from 10 to 35 usually. Right. right. So people's expectations were a little bit outside as when they saw the 17, 18 number. Um, number two, they saw how many people left that class and assumed that they didn't get a whole lot from it. And number three, a lot of the productive players from that class were junior college guys, or in Boom's case, somebody who left early. But Mark's, let's be honest, Mark Stoops does not survive to, to today if it weren't for the 2014 class because Boom Williams himself you know, helped them get to seven wins last season. Without him, they don't get to seven wins. They might not even get to five wins. Even without, um, Boom, without Boom Williams in 2015 – that's right. That Eastern Kentucky game was just flat out ugly. And if you look at S and P, that was by far the worst offense of the Stoops era. I think they finished hundred and third. And there's even some people that think of Boom doesn't get knocked out of that Louisville game that year that Kentucky goes on to wins that and goes six and six. So mm-hmm. I know Boom I, Boom had he was kind of a polarizing figure because there was those rumors that he quit the team and he would mm-hmm. it seemed like he I don't not fake injuries, but he got injured a lot, and used uh, I guess kind of some people would consider that kind of babied along, but he was a really productive player for Kentucky. Yeah, he butted heads with Eddie Grand when Eddie Graham came in, and Eddie Graham is a very different kind of position coach than Chad Scott. Yeah, uh, he's not going to tolerate a whole lot of stuff, and that's not a. I like Chad Scott a lot. I think he's a really good coach, but you know, it's um. I think the problem with that 2014 class is they came into a vacuum. You know, there were some joker guys who had been through real bad experiences in the program, and there was not a lot of quality experience leadership. Um, there wasn't a positive locker room atmosphere. And you, you throw older guys who were a little bit jaded and maligned. In and they heard, guys. and these seniors heard all about how great these these yeah. kids were, and you see, with in college football, you have that a lot because you usually hear the players say, "Okay, uh, it doesn't matter when they first put the pads on, and it's time to hit your rank. You don't have a ranking anymore. That what happens happens on the field." And I think some of those seniors thought maybe the coach and staff was playing a little favorites, um, which happens yeah. in a coaching transition. That's right. It, but I mean, yeah, I mean, there's no doubt the 2014 class did not quite live up to my expectations for them on the flip side you know i'm going to resist the temptation to write it off as a bus class because to me that's overlooking what what a lot of those guys accomplished and who how good a lot of those guys have been you know so and and, i mean you know i i think we're going to look back and we're going to say most of the best players in the mark stoops era still came from that class i would go so Mm -hmm. far as to say but um 
you know, keep, keeping it keeping it on topic a little bit, Barker probably bought into Mark Stoops' vision more than any other person that's been associated with the program. We've seen how topsy-turvy quarterback recruiting, how dramatic quarterback recruiting can be and recruits can be over the last four years as Kentucky's basically been strung along by three or four or five straight quarterback recruits that were their top option. Barker stayed loyal through it all. And um, that says a lot about him. I'm surprised he didn't leave a little bit earlier. I thought it would have been best for him and the program after Johnson won that job. He was finally back from back injury. After he lost it out in the spring, I thought it would have been best if they both moved on because he could have had two years out of school. Now, for yeah. Kentucky st- staff, I think selfishly, they wanted him to stay so they could have a legit backup quarterback this season. Right. And and credit you got to credit Barker to that. He did that, and then I thought he was real classy at how he went about the transfer. Didn't do it before the bowl season, stuck out the bowl game, a game they actually kind of needed him in because Johnson went out for a few plays. And, you know, I think I think fans and the staff, I think, should really appreciate him, even though you could look at his career at UK as kind of being a bust. Yeah, I mean, he the truth has many sides, you know. And, you know, one side of it is it was a disappointing career at Kentucky. He was loyal, deserves respect for how he went out. I think he matured. I know his dad went on the record and said it wasn't about him being afraid to compete. Well, that's fine. I, I, don't, I wouldn't think less of him if he wanted to be somewhere where he's going to have an opportunity, the best opportunity to play his last year of college football. To me, you don't have to frame that as being afraid to compete. That's just thinking about yourself and your future. And I think that probably did play a role in it. Um, and I'm with you. You know, When Stoops is hinting that Barker had a leg up for the job, I can't read Stoops' intent infallibly, but I, I I think that Wilson probably had a much better chance of winning that even with Barker than Stoops was letting on. When you see how the offense developed, it just didn't make sense for Barker um, no. in his skill no. set. If Barker went out there in the season opener next year, and I hate saying it like this, but if he went out there in the season opener next year with two offensive tackles, a little something to prove, I'm blitzing – 60% of the time because he never proved that he can that he can stand in the pocket and and escape the pocket when he needs to and make throws with guys in his face consistently, you know. You blitz him. That's the book on him. You just blitz him until he until he shows that he can I, beat it and he never did. I so, agree 100. He needs to, He just has to be an offense that I think spreads it out in this quick passing game. Um and it's been rumored that he's looking at a school like Toledo. I think that'd be a great fit for him. Um, Jason yeah. Candle's a really good offensive coach, and that's how they play. They spread it out. They're in the gun. Um, they they run it a little bit, but what they're their passing stuff is really pretty quick, and they've had success with a Kentucky kid, um, Logan Woodside, the last few years. So I think that probably pro, you're a college football junkie. Probably the most surprising bowl game of the bowl season for me. We're talking surprising bowl games. Yeah. Kentucky's performance, thirty-four to nothing, Toledo to App State for all you football junkies out there. I did not see that coming, but that yeah. would be a good fit for him. Yeah, I think so. And App State, uh, they got a coach by the name of Scott Satterfield. I think in three years, if Pruitt doesn't work out, Tennessee is going to be kicking themselves that they didn't interview him. Um, he's from right down the road. He recruits the same area that Tennessee has to recruit. He plays a style that would be you know, very appealing to Tennessee fans. Um, so that's a guy to keep an eye on. I know around here a lot of people talk about Troy Brown, but Satterfield's a guy I believe is 21-4 and four in three years in that, that Sunbelt Conference, um, and he's split with Neil Brown. They're 1-1 against each other, and they're going to be in the same division next year. So that's going to be a, a, a unique matchup to keep an eye on. Yeah. But uh, we'll go ahead and move on. Uh, just right, one right sec. Were you surprised by that callback news? Because I, I didn't really see that coming, and I thought he was a guy – with Wilson and Benny, I thought he could have been a really good change of pace back for them next year. And uh, he's really got that speed that they didn't have last year without Williams. And his really his high school career before he got injured was uh, really something that you don't see very often. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he, um, it surprised me. I talked to a couple people afterwards, and the, I don't think that the coaches were shocked by it. I think they knew kind of what situation was and what his – family had been dealing with and it's really real tough situation and hope hope for the best for everybody involved who's being touched by that and i'll give him his space but um 
you know, I, I was super high on this kid when I watched him at Kentucky's camp. I had heard about him turning in these four, three, 40 times. And he just was most impressive about him is the way he ran. And he's, he was bigger and more put together than I think almost anybody who runs like that. You know, the question would have been competition and in the injury status, but you know, he, Urban Meyer was at school right around the time that he got, got hurt. I don't think he would have gotten the Ohio state offer, but he was a promising guy. I will say since Snell broke out, and Snell broke out after they recruited Kobach, they've become a little bit less enamored with speed, speed, speed. And I'm hearing people talk more about it's not about your 40 time. It's about how you respond to first contact. Yeah. And that's why they recruited Chris Rodriguez. That's why they like Cavossier Smoke. So I think you rightly pointed out the dual threat era has begun at quarterback. I think that the era of the fat back has begun at Kentucky, too, and that's that's probably Benny and, Snell's doing. And when you look at recruiting Ohio, I know Smoke and Rodriguez are from the South, but you look at some of the backs that area produces, and it's a lot of power backs. Yep. And Kentucky, it's, if they're going to recruit that kind of area, in Ohio you're going to get run maulers on the offensive line, and you're going to get backs that can break tackles and run – uh, really just over people and not by people. And so yeah. I, I think that's interesting to see that kind of change the staff is making. And to team that with a dual-threat quarterback like I think they're going to do, I think that can be a really interesting offense for Kentucky moving forward. Yep, and Jaquise Cross today, and we're recording on Friday, Jaquise Cross announced that he was going to be transferring. That's not a surprise to you mm-hmm. or anybody. He was – he was just not moving up the depth chart. Yeah, was, that was a situation where I think sometimes there's a risk when your position coach is recruiting guys to play his position from his area. Jimmy Brumbaugh recruits the Deep South, and he just falls in love with this kid that nobody knows about who's a little bit, you know, he's got a, a unique build, not a lot out there on him. So it was his, his position guy, his region, you know, they – the staff signed off on him ultimately, but that was more of like Brumbaugh's doing than anybody else's, and I'm not just not surprised that he left. Yeah, you could just—it's just the kind of recruited over kind of situation. Uh, and I think it's best for uh, him and the program that they both kind of go their separate ways. Yep. Um, but we'll move on. Go ahead, Justin. I'm sorry. No, I mean we were going to talk about the, the the speaking of assistant coaches. Yeah. And former Kentucky assistant coaches like Brumbaugh, Derek Ansley. Somebody that you know I heard recently um, is somebody that Mark Stoops would love to get back on the staff. I would like to hear your your take. He was already going to be Kentucky's co-defensive coordinator. Is there any conceivable scenario in which you could see Derek Ansley, defensive backs coach at Alabama, who's going to have other options? Could you could you see him seriously entertaining a move back to Kentucky if they they gave him a good title and gave him the right amount of money? Absolutely. And I'll give you the reason why Alabama made a defensive coordinator this change change this year. And what they're going to do, they haven't announced it yet, but I'm pretty positive that a guy by the name of Pete Golding, who was UTSA's defensive coordinator, um, really had a dominant defense his two years there in San Antonio. He has been brought on the staff, and he's going to coach, I believe, maybe safeties or outside linebackers, one of the two. He's going to be named the co-defensive coordinator with Tosh Lupoy, who's a young, um, rising head coach, one of the top assistants in the country. I believe Alabama just paid him in the past offseason, bumped his salary up to, I guess, around 700 k which is a lot to pay for a guy that's not being a coordinator. So I think it's pretty much implied that he's going to be their next defensive coordinator. And I think bringing on Golding is a move to make whenever Lupoy leaves, which he's probably going to get a head coaching job soon, he's just going to be their next coordinator. So what I think you see there is Bama making two moves. They're going to got, they got their coordinator for their next move, and then they got their move after that in Golding. That puts Ansley third in line. So, And he's been a coach that's moved places fast his whole career. He was at Kentucky shortly. He was at Tennessee shortly before that. And now he's been at Alabama for two years. And he's making $395,000. I think what Kentucky can do is they can, if they keep Matt House, which I think they want to do, but House is going to have to give up uh, play calling duties. And what I would think would happen is they would pay Ansley somewhere around what they're paying Grand, which is an 800 ballpark area. And I think you would, uh, they would pay him that, and he would be your defensive coordinator. Maybe give him title head coach of the defense, 
but it would maybe co-coordinator situation. And I think he's a guy that stoops trust enough to let him run the defense and call it and really not interfere. Uh, we talked about on the last pod. I think Ansley, he was you know this. He was known as the one of the you know smarter X's and O guys in the program. Him and Neil Brown when the, they first start when Stoops first started were the, like the two guys that they were like man these guys are really sharp. And I think it would be a really a kind of a close to a home run hire as UK can get for that defensive coordinator spot. I'm really high on Ansley, and I think after two years working with Saban and Jeremy Pruitt, I think that's a that should be a positive sign for all UK fans. Yeah, I've already talked to some of the some of the family members of Kentucky's mm-hmm. recent defensive back commits and signees, and they are ecstatic about the possibility, even just the mention of Ansley coming back, because this guy's reputation really precedes him. He built kind of local reputations, Tennessee, Alabama places like that before he got to Kentucky. And, uh, you know, at Kentucky, frankly, their defensive backs were better as freshmen than they were for a lot of their sophomore and junior seasons. And Ainsley had a lot to do with that. Now, th- some of this can seem like an implicit criticism of clink scale. And, I mean, position coaches always own their unit's performance, fair or not. But I've heard that, that Stoops likes clink scale a lot. And he not can... just his recruiting in Michigan. But yeah. I've watched, I've watched Clink coach at, at camps a lot for probably two weeks over the summer. And I was really impressed with him. I mean, the guy knows football. He's a good good football coach. So I don't know what went wrong with those DBs this year. And I'm happy for him that they played so well against Northwestern and even against Vanderbilt second half of the season. And, and I think it would be Ansley and Clink scale sticking around. I think Stoops is going to be more hands-on with the defense on the field in games. That's something that I've heard people say. He was involved in the game planning, but they want him. A lot of people around the program think he needs to be down there in the huddle See, on game day a lot more with the defense. I, I disagree with that. I think it needs to be either two things. If they get Ansley, I think you just got to turn it over and let him call it. But if he's if Stoops going to get in there, he needs to do what he did last season in 2016. It's just full on be the defensive coordinator. I just, I think we've seen it do him do both, be kind of out, kind of in. I think he's either got to be all in either way. And that's just a personal opinion of mine. But I think if you hire Ansley, and I think that's going to be a discussion they have, he's going to want to run uh, the entire ship. And I, I, I'm i not sure what Stoops wants to do. What I mean, either if he just wants to be half in, half out, I think he needs to just, I guess, just keep Matt House. Uh, but I think uh, – I think that's something he's really going to have to decide on. And if that's what you're hearing, um, I don't know. Well, I guess we'll see. Yeah. No, I mean, this was before the Ansley news. I heard people just thought before Ansley even came up, a lot of people thought a lot of defensive players in the program preferred it when Stoops was like he was at the end of the 2016 season. Um, And they thought that he had taken a step back, not from the game planning, but in terms of being there on the field in the huddle with guys. 2017. Now, Ansley would change things. I would agree with you on that. No, if you can get Ansley in for a really good tenth assistant or defensive co-defensive coordinator in there, then then that's what you got to do. But you have to overhaul the defensive staff. I mean, I'm not I'm not calling for heads, and I'm not placing blame because we only know from a bird's eye view. But we didn't anticipate the significance of losing John Toth, of losing Cole Mosier, of losing Boom Williams, of losing Bedette and Baker. Lost a lot on offense we didn't account for. Most people didn't account for. But there's no excuse for the defense to struggle the way that it did. So they got to they gotta shake something up. No, on paper, and from part of the advanced stats, it was the worst defense of the Stoops era. And that talent they have on that side of the ball, we can make a big point about the, the front inefficiencies and how they struggle with the defensive line, but – for the secondary to struggle like they did, was there's really no excuse for that because there's NFL players back there, and if you can get a guy like Ansley, I think it's a big, I'd be a big um, boost. And another thing I wanted to ask you, Justin, it's been a popular topic. Um, Mike Stoops has gotten a lot of attention lately. I don't think I don't see it happening, but I'd be interested in maybe your choice and maybe even a fan's choice. What would you rather have, a guy like? Taking a risk on a guy like Ansley, who's never been a coordinator before, but is really, you know, well respected and has been around a lot of big time programs, or with fans like a proven coordinator like 
a Mike Stoops or if or if Stoops could just go get any Power Five coordinator, what would you rather have? You know, it's an interesting question. On on the on the one hand, I think I like Ansley on the surface more. Just in terms of, I don't think he would be that big of a risk. You know, I, he, he would be young, but just the, the rooms that he's been in and what he's done already, I think you, you'd have to feel great about him going into it. Stoops, when you get a brother with a brother, you know, they, the Stoops family is certainly, you know, no stranger to doing that. But I think it just seems like on a human level it would complicate things if, if it didn't work out and it would be an easy avenue for, for really firestorms of criticism if things didn't work out and it would be an awkward position that I'm not sure Kentucky would want to open up even if, if Mark Stoops is inclined to go that route. I will say, I think if, if they were to get Ansley in and he were to kill it his first year, he might well be gone. He yeah. might only be there for a year. Whereas I think if Mike Stoops yeah, but I think you take that every year if you can get it. If he's going to come in and really improve this defense, I think, especially where Kentucky is right now, I think you take it and run with it. Yeah, yeah, and that's that. I mean, I would, I would take, I would take Hansley, and it sounds like, sounds like we're on the same page. Are you, are you in agreement? Yeah, I agree. I agree. I think if you always take, uh, if you got that upstart and you think he's a sure thing, I think you always take it um, instead of going into complacency. Uh, which is what you would kind of get if uh, got a proven coordinator. What I mean, what you what he is is what you're gonna get. I want to touch on the basketball team uh, right quick, Justin, and then we'll go ahead and wrap this edition of the pod up. Um, basically, uh, I think Kentucky's been after the other than that UCLA loss. I think they've really kind of playing some of their best basketball of the season. Of course, a blowout win over Louisville. They just picked up a tricky road win against LSU with the opener. Um, it's always going to be tricky, but that's going to be one of their um, weakest uh, SEC competition of the season. So you don't want to – that's a game you don't want to lose. So I think it was huge that they picked up that win. But a guy we've really seen emerge is uh, Shea Gilgis Alexander. And you had a unique question I believe you brought up on Twitter. Who would you take, uh, not as a pro prospect, but playing the best right now? And I think it would be hard to go against uh, uh, Shea Gilgis Alexander as of right now. Yeah. I asked that question, and I guess I'm a little bit surprised that not more people pushed back. It was pretty unanimous. People were saying Shea, you know, as the best player right now. And the way that he's playing, I mean, we've known about the defense, but the way he's attacking and the way he's picking his spots and the way that, you know, he's bouncing back from from bad things that happen. The basketball IQ he's showing, I think, is some real high-level stuff from a freshman. It is not something I don't think really anybody – thought we were going to get from him. I think you thought he was just going to kind of be an energy guy, kind of like a Liggins-like um, defender and just rebounder energy and uh, get steals and dunks. But he's really shown some skills, especially in the pick and roll, that I I didn't see coming. The, the, the interesting question for me is who, who would how would you rank the top three or top five players once you get after Shea right now, just in terms of overall college basketball game, I would be hard-pressed not to go with Knox at number two, even though the defense is a little bit lacking. You know, the rebounding and the scoring is going to be there most nights. And then I guess I would go with Diallo third, even yeah. though people are a little bit mad. At I would actually playing. have Diallo two. Yeah. Just because he's such a force. And, he, I mean, he's going through a little funk right now, but every time he touches it, I think he can score the ball. He showed me – um, some ability to pull up mid-range. He hit threes at a not good clip, but just okay, and he can get to the rim. Once he figures out how to avoid charges and the ability of him on the defensive end, uh, the potential he has, I think he can really be a force. And I think when you look at Kentucky come March, if they can get Knox going and they can have that two-guard lineup with Quad A Green as a floor spacer, and if Gilgis Alexander can become that – so be that pick and roll force. I think that's going to be a really a, they're going to be really dynamic in the last five minutes of a game when it comes out to you know grinding it out and just getting a bucket. Yeah, you're right. It's the ebbs and flows of a season. Early in the year, I would have put Diallo actually as maybe Kentucky's most consistent player, even though Knox was the leading scorer. My only concern with Diallo right now, we're going to see how he responds to this dip. 
is I, before the season, one of my questions was how is this team going to manufacture half-court offense? And Quade's turned out to be a pretty good shooter. And Gilgis Alexander's turned out to be a better offensive player and getting better and better than I anticipated. And Knox, you still know he's going to be good more than he's bad. And P.J. Washington's becoming more efficient offensively. Who knows Jared Vanderbilt. Diallo has that hero ball gene. and it's New York, he's, gonna, he's a New York City guard. Yeah. So if Kentucky turns out to be better offensively than I and a lot of people thought, is he going to be able to find his niche as a guy who just isn't in constant attack mode? Is he going to be able to pick his – I thought he picked his spots better at the start of the second half against LSU. Is he going to be okay taking more of a more of a reserved conservative role? And, you know, no reason to think he won't. But yeah. I could see Knox or, or Diallo two and then four – you, you, four and five, you could go Gabriel, you could go Green, you could go Washington, you could go Richards. I guess it's anybody's guess, but Shea's definitely number one right now. Yeah, and if Diallo could just become, I think, a cutter with those shooters around, and uh, Gilgis in that uh, pick-and-roll game, if he can keep getting better, I think Diallo could really get some buckets just off cuts. Um, Low-block scoring, I think, is still a concern because they don't have somebody they can get it to on the rock, so that's something uh, to look at moving forward, but you just mentioned him, Jared Vanderbilt. Justin, if you had to predict right now, does he play for Kentucky this season? Just a guess, man. I would say no. I would say no, and I, I know there, there's been so much anticipation lately, and people are zooming in on pictures, and I, I could very well be wrong, but I just think Calipari is setting setting people up for the very real possibility that he's not going to play, and I don't know how that's going to work out for him. I don't know how much that's going to protect or preserve whatever NBA draft stock he would have or what it would mean for next season. But I would say no. What would you say? I've always thought he was going to play, but now we're getting to the point. I think I believe they have a homestand coming up. If it doesn't happen by, I guess, the fifth SEC game, it's not going to happen. And really, Cal, I, I personally criticized Cal for not playing Diallo last year. I understand the points that people made, but the thing that Kentucky team needed was that extra perimeter defender last year. Just a guy that would have been better than what they had. And really what hurt them was in the North Carolina game was not having uh, that guy when Monk and Fox got in foul trouble just to give them a couple minutes outside of the uh, Hawkins. And I think if you play the all in that North Carolina game, I think Kentucky probably wins that game because they kind of lost it there in that, in that first half. They could have really – had a six or seven point lead going into halftime if they could have just had somebody there instead of they were trailing by, I believe, six or seven. So it, a lot of it's going to depend on what this team does and if Vanderbilt comes back. If this team has a second-round exit and Vanderbilt leaves, I think fans are right to criticize Cal for pretty much giving a kid of uh, a scholarship, a free ride, and for him to never even play uh, for the team. I totally agree. And um... – I guess Kentucky's got a tough game coming up against Tennessee this weekend. If this is posted beforehand, you know, great. If not, then forgive us for the for the time sensitive nature of it not working out. But we wanted to talk about the SEC at large really briefly. Mm-hmm. I think um, I think Florida. It's just going to come down to to Florida being the the toughest competition in the SEC. You know, they ran into some speed bumps earlier, but. They've seemed to have righted the ship in SEC play. Of course, they went 17 of 28 from three in a blowout of Texas A&M. That's not going to happen a whole lot, but this is a team that can shoot the eyes out of the ball. I think that they're they're one of the best teams in the country in terms of the fewest turnovers per possession. The way that they pass, the way that they can make so many guys can shoot, and their pedigree as a program, and they're 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 used to being at this level. I would still go with Florida. I think they're probably the team that's still likely to be there at the end. I agree with you. A&M, they seem to have some turmoil going on over there. I know DJ Hogue suspended um, their starting point guard. I believe he's injured right now. It's just some weird stuff's going on over there, and I'm not sure. Um, But if they get it figured out, I think on paper, talent-wise, that's the team that would really scare you, especially with that duo inside. But Florida, they really have the point guard. With Chris Chioza, and they, like you said, they can really shoot the rock. Uh, but the SEC, I think it's really wide open. I think Kentucky is definitely in that first tier, and right now I'll put Florida in the first tier with them. 
But I think you can make an argument in that second tier you could have seven to eight teams. And that's not something we've really had. Usually you would have Kentucky in that first tier, maybe Florida. Um, but after that, I think you wouldn't even have a second tier. You'd have a third tier. I mean, if we were to go through right now and talk about NCAA tournament teams from the SEC, and I guess this is the last thing that we, we can do to wrap up, you do have to say Kentucky, you have to say Florida, you'd have to throw in Arkansas, Missouri, um, Texas A&M, certainly. Auburn has, has built up a very nice a very nice spot for themselves. Um, you know, Mississippi State, just sheer on the, just their sheer record alone. Tennessee's 0-2 in the SEC. If they're 0-3, that could complicate things, but this is a team that's still ranked in the top 25. Yeah. Alabama, they, they had a really good non-conference schedule that I think is going to help them if they can just get to around 11 SEC wins. I think they would yeah. have a pretty strong resume. Ken Palm, Ken Palm has Tennessee with, like, the third-best schedule in the country. And then Alabama, Alabama's interesting because everybody expects them to be in the tournament, but they've got several losses and they just lost to Vanderbilt. I think they'll be in at the end of the day, but you could, people are saying seven. I mean, this could, it's an outside chance at eight or nine, depending on how conference play shakes out. Yeah, I think it's really interesting. I don't think the top is going to be as good as maybe people thought it was, but I think there's going to be a lot of, like, seeds between seven and 11. You're going to have bunch of SEC teams, I think, in that area. I agree. But we'll go ahead and wrap this up, Justin. I appreciate you doing this with me, and I hope everybody uh, listening, hope you liked it. Those of you still listening after an hour, we appreciate you a lot. Um, if you could, just give us some feedback, uh, negative or positive, whether on Twitter or uh, drop in the site. I'm sure Justin's going to post this uh, in the message boards there at catsillustrated.com. And Justin, once again, man, thanks for doing it. Thanks a lot, Adam. Thank you for hosting, and I hope everybody continues to read the site, interact on Twitter, as Adam said. Have a great weekend. All righty, later, people.